Our text is from John 1, verses 19 to 34. Listen to the gospel of God. Now, this is the testimony or witness of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ. Nor Elijah. Nor the prophet. John answered them saying. I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me. Is preferred before me. Whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified or witnessed that this is the Son of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of your word in this hour so that we might leave here as doers of it and not just as hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The Gospel of John, just like the other three Gospels, begins with John the Baptist. But in John's Gospel, he's never called John the Baptist. John the Baptist just means John the Baptizer. That's how he's known. But he's never referred to as the Baptizer He's baptizing, but he's not called the baptizer. He's simply called John in this gospel. 
There are two reasons for this. First, in John's gospel, the primary role, and we could say this is true in all the gospels, but John really brings this out. In John's gospel, John the Baptist's primary role is not baptizing people. That's secondary. His main role is bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And baptism serves that purpose. John is primarily a witness. His duty, his sole purpose in life, as he sees it, is to point away from himself and to bear witness to the Messiah, God's Son, the Lamb of God. The unifying theme of our passage this morning, the, the theme that unifies John 1, 19 to 34, is John's witness to Christ. And the gospel writer arranges this passage carefully to show us this. If you look in your Bible at the very first sentence, verse 19, and the very last sentence of our passage, verse 34, you'll notice that they both have the word witness, bear witness, or testimony, or testify, depending on the translation. The New King James Version uses the word testimony in verse 19 and testified in verse 34. These are from the same stem or same root. Okay, so verse 19, this is the testimony of John, witness of John. Verse 34, I have seen and testified or borne witness that this is the son of God. So the author's telling us where the passage begins and where the passage ends. This is a unit here. And he's telling us that this passage is about John's witness to Jesus. John the Baptist is really John the witness. But there's a second reason he's never called John the Baptist, per se, in the fourth gospel. And it's related to the first reason. Maybe you can guess what it is. Who's the main baptizer in our passage that I just read? Yes, it's not John, it's Jesus. John baptizes with water, sure, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John and his baptism are not central. John wants us to know that Jesus and his Holy Spirit baptism are central. It's where the focus needs to be. John knows this and he wants us to know it. You see, John is just a witness to Jesus the Baptist. Now, in verses 19 to 23, John the witness is put on the stand. Put on the stand to testify. And he's cross-examined by these priests and Levites come from Jerusalem. And this scene kind of reads like a, like a lawsuit. It's full of court imagery and forensic overtones. John the witness had gained enough popularity that an official delegation from Jerusalem came. They were sent to question him. Verse 19 says the priests and Levites were sent from Jerusalem. Same word that is used to say that John was sent from God. They were sent on official business to ask John a specific question which turned into a series of questions. And we, we probably don't even have all of the questions they ask. You have to remember that these stories are often condensed. 
Who are you? What are you all about? What are you up to, John? In a world that had gone centuries without a prophet, John was a prophetic voice. And he was creating quite the stir, wasn't he? People were listening to him. People were following John. This raised concern in the headquarters in Jerusalem. So an official delegation was sent to provide a a report. Who is this guy? What's he all about? What's he doing? Look at John's answer in verse 20. I'm not the Christ. That's my answer. He answers their question first by telling them who he is not. Don't look at me. I'm not the Christ. He's here. He's here somewhere. He's going to tell him he's in your midst. He's among you. He's one of you. He's a Jew. He's one of us. You're right to be concerned about him, but I'm not him. He's not me. And notice how John keeps pointing away from himself in verses 19 to 23, even to the point where he's frustrating them. John's message to these inquisitors is that it's not about me. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah either, for that matter. I'm not the prophet either. Stop fixating on me. Stop beholding me. You need to look at Christ. You need to fix your eyes on him. You need to behold him, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 21. Why does John deny that he is Elijah? Maybe that raises a question for for you. Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Why does he say this? After all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke make it clear that John the Baptist was, in one sense, Elijah. Of course, John the Baptist was not Elijah reincarnated or Elijah risen from the dead, anything like that. He wasn't literally Elijah in the flesh. And maybe that's what he meant when he said, no, he's just being literal. But I don't think that's what he meant, actually. Jesus says that John was a prophet like Elijah in fulfillment of God's promise in Malachi. Back in Malachi 4, God promised to send the prophet Elijah, it says. The prophet Elijah in Malachi 4 to bring in the new age. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke present John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy or promise that God would send Elijah. For example, Jesus says in Matthew eleven, thirteen and 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And in Luke 1, 17, the angel says that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew 17, 12, Mark 9, 13 are two other verses that identify John the Baptist with Elijah. So why does John deny that he is Elijah? Well, it appears that John didn't make this connection about himself. He didn't make the connection that Jesus would later make about him. And that's recorded in the Gospels. John didn't see himself as the new Elijah. He wasn't that 
significant in his own eyes. He's just a voice in the wilderness. An anonymous person in the wilderness crying. Preparing the way. In verse 22, the Levites and the priests, they get desperate. Look, John, we've got to know who you are. We've got to get a straight answer from you. Just tell us so that we can take something back to the people that sent us. Say something positive about yourself. So John responds in verse 23 by quoting from Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. The word Lord there, the way of the Lord. It's an important word. We need to talk about it for just a minute. It's a reference to Yahweh. God's main covenant name in the Hebrew scriptures. When you see the word Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is a reference to God's Hebrew name, Yahweh. Yahweh is the creator of the world and he's the covenant God of Israel. Yahweh is God's most important name in the Old Testament. He's got a lot of names. but This is the central one. So let me read Isaiah 40, verse 3 in its entirety. John quotes from part of it. Let me read it in entirety. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. By applying this verse to himself, John is saying that the Christ, Jesus, is God. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Because John is preparing the way for Yahweh. And John is preparing the way for the Christ. Which means that the Christ is God. Yahweh. And notice that John never really answers their question about who he is. Even his most straightforward answer points away from himself and to the Lord. Away from himself and to the Lord. The only thing John says about himself is that, is that he is this voice in the wilderness. His job is to exalt the name of the Lord, not his name. John was sent to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. The message of John the Baptist is one big, not me. John's number one goal in life was self-effacement before Christ. I must decrease, Christ must increase. That was his mindset from the very beginning of his ministry. Christ must become more. I must become less. I'm not the light. He's the light. The light that gives life. Don't prefer me. Prefer him. Don't look at me. Behold him. Do we have anything to learn from John the witness? Are you living a not me life? Or is your life all about you? John is an exemplary proto prototype of the Christian life. 
the gospel writer is presenting John the Baptist, John the witness, to us as an example of how to live before Christ. An example of humble, Christ-exalting Christian life. How it ought to look. You see, John keeps showing up. You've noticed that in this series, John keeps showing up throughout chapter 1 as a witness. But every time he shows up, the point is to talk about who John is not and who Jesus is. Even John, the gospel writer, does this when John's not, the John the Baptist is not even talking. Look at verses 6 and 8. There was a man sent from John. This is the writer of the gospel, not John the Baptist. There was a man sent from John whose name, uh, sent, sent from God, whose name was John. This man came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness to that light. That's, he knows that that's what John the Baptist would have wanted him to say. Verse 15, John bore witness to him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's John the Baptist talking. John is our example of what it looks like to be a faithful, humble, self-effacing witness to Jesus. And the point is not that we should wear camel hair tunics and leather belts and eat grasshoppers as John did. And the point is not even that you should become an, you know, some kind of traveling evangelist or desert preacher. That's not the point. The point is that your life must be one of pointing people away from yourself and to Jesus more and more every day. You must, the message of your life must be, don't prefer me, prefer the one who saved me, my Christ, my Lord. Of course, to do that, you yourself must prefer Christ, the one who saved you, more than you prefer yourself. If people are still talking about you in 200 years from now, and they almost certainly won't be, but if anyone is still talking about you in 200 years, you want them to be talking about how your life drew people's attention away from you and pointed people to the grace and the truth and the light and the life of Jesus Christ. But again, to do that, to live that kind of life, you have to be the kind of person who, from your heart, loves Jesus and wants to glorify him more than you love yourself and want to glorify Yourself. So you can imitate John now in whatever situation you're in. You you can begin becoming less so that Jesus becomes more in your life right now, this very second. That's the beauty of this. Today, you can start becoming a not me, but him. Christian like John. That was his message, not me, but him. And it wasn't just his message out of his mouth. It was John's way of life. It stemmed from his heart, a heart that put God right at the center. 
John revered the Lord God in his heart. As 1 Peter 3.15 puts it. And this reverence, this commitment to God from the heart worked its way out in his speech, his actions, his whole life. John had great humility and yet... Listen to what Jesus said of John in Matthew 11, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. And the verse goes on. But whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So you see the message there. The only way that you can become that you can be greater than John the Baptist is by becoming even lesser than John the Baptist, which is hard to do. In verses 24 to 34, John bears witness to Jesus. And as the passage moves along, John's witness to Jesus becomes more and more specific. In verses 24 to 28, John does not refer to Jesus specifically by name or even by title. And he's referring to Jesus, obviously, but not by name or title. He just tells the the Jewish delegation, the Inquisition, in verse 26, there stands one among you whom you do not know. Now, down in verse 31 and again in verse 33, John admits that he did not know who he was either at some level. Didn't know the fullness of it at the very least. So John's fully aware that no one is able to know who the Christ is and what he's all about unless God reveals it to them. Even as God revealed it to John. God is the one who must come and open your eyes so the light comes in. That's true for John. It's true for them. But you see, this testimony that John's giving them is going to leave them completely without excuse. Because now they should have seen him. They should have known him. And then in verse 27, John makes it clear that he bears witness to the one who is greater than he is. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me. And then he says, whose sandal strap I am unworthy of. To untie. Jesus is incomparably greater than John. John says he's not even worthy to perform the most demeaning task of a household servant. Taking care of the feet of one's master. Now some ancient sources say that um, this was even too demeaning for a household servant taking care of the master's feet. It was the task of the lowest of the lowest slaves. So by saying that he's unworthy even to take care of Jesus' feet, John is abasing himself once again. John does not want even the smallest degree of glory and honor to be given to him instead of to Jesus. John wants to remove every obstacle that might obscure, cloud the greatness 
of Christ and the superiority of Christ. Jesus Christ is infinitely greater than the second greatest person ever to be born of a woman. In verses 29 to 31, we finally get to the heart of the passage. Jesus enters the narrative. Of course, he was there all along. But now John sees Jesus and he bears witness to him as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the high point of John's testimony. It's the climax of his witness to Jesus. This this statement, this proclamation should make us take a step back. What's it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament lambs. He's the Passover lamb that turns away the angel of death, except he is infinitely greater than the Passover slaughter. He's the lamb of the daily sacrifices established in the book of Leviticus, except his sacrifice is infinitely greater than all the daily sacrifices in the temple put together. Jesus is the triumphant lamb in the book of Revelation who was slain and yet who reigns. He is the lamb provided by God in Genesis 22. You remember Abraham and his son Isaac when they went up to the mountain for the sacrifice. And God was going to provide the lamb. And he did in a ram. Jesus is not a lamb of God. He is the lamb of God. He is God's lamb. Which means that his life, his ministry, and especially his death and resurrection reconcile the world to God. This reconciliation accomplished in this sacrificial lamb is reconciliation to God. He is God's one and only sinless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now Hebrews 10.4 says that the blood of animals was unable to take away sin. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, all those other lambs, goats, rams, They were not powerful enough in themselves to remove an ounce of guilt, an ounce of sin, an ounce of shame. How could it? How could it? How could an animal sacrifice deal adequately with man's sin against God, the living God, the infinitely holy and righteous God? It doesn't work. They couldn't do it. They were just pictures, symbols, foreshadows that pointed forward to the one and only sacrifice that could and did deal adequately with man's sin. If Jesus had not been coming, if Jesus, the Lamb of God, had not been coming the whole time, the animal sacrifices would have been utterly 
worthless. Worse than worthless. God counted them only because they pointed forward to the coming sacrifice of Christ. Only God's lamb can take away any sin. Only God's lamb can take away the sin of the world. John Calvin said that lamb of God was the chief office of Christ. I think that works. Christ's most important role was his role as lamb of God. Of God. Yes, Jesus is our priest. Yes, Jesus is our king. Jesus is our prophet. There are other titles, there are other offices. But above all, or perhaps underlying all, Jesus is God's lamb, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Without that office, none of the other offices are possible. And of course, there's overlap between those offices. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. And this truth is so powerful that in verses 36 and 37, I know we didn't read that, but if you have your Bible open, in verses 36 and 37, two of John's disciples leave John to go follow Jesus right after John proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. And this is exactly what John wanted. He wasn't saying, oh, no, stay with me. Why follow me when you can follow the real deal? He is the Lamb of God. Behold him. Follow him. Look at him. Well, does John's message, does this message, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, does it grip you the way it gripped John and the way it gripped John's disciples, at least these two? How important is it to you that Jesus is the Lamb of God? How often do you think about that truth? The Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Is there anything more important to you than that? That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. What's more important? But Jesus doesn't just take away our sins. He takes away the sins of the world, not just the Jews sins, but the sins of the whole world. And we need to consider what this means and what it doesn't mean. What sense does Jesus take away the sin of the world? Let's consider briefly five passages that are going to help us have a biblical perspective on what this means. And there's there are several more that we could look at. First. This is a fun passage. John 11, verses 49 to 52. I'll read it to you. You can turn there. John 11, 49 to 52. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, said to the other Jewish leaders, religious leaders, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to our advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Remember that, that fun scene in John 11, verse 51. Now, Caiaphas, and this is the interpretation of what, just, what Caiaphas just said. Now, Caiaphas did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation 
and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verses 51 and 52. So here we have a high priest, Caiaphas, prophesying that Jesus would die not only for the Jews, but also for the children of God who are scattered throughout the world. Now, you know, obviously he didn't know the, the fullness of what he was saying, right? But we do. First John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Propitiation means taking away God's anger and wrath. Christ's death takes away the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. Christ's death is the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the world. It propitiates God, satisfies God, his justice. Remember, he can't just sweep it under the rug, our sins under the rug. He has to deal with them head on because he has to be propitiated. Listen to Revelation 5, 9. By your blood, you have redeemed us to God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So God is pulling people from or out of every nation, every people to be in his people, in his church, his bride, to be one of his children. And when John says that the lamb, that that God's lamb takes away the sin of the world, he's not saying that everyone in the whole world will be saved. Notice that last verse, it's taking from the tribes, from the peoples. And remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Yes, he did love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's lamb only takes away sin. It only takes away God's wrath from those throughout the world who believe in Jesus. John, the last verse, John three thirty six makes it clear that not everyone in the world will be saved. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. God was not propitiated toward him because he did not believe. The Lamb of God removes God's wrath from everyone who trusts in Christ. No matter what nation they're from. You don't have to be a Jew to get the wrath of God removed from you. By the blood of God's lamb. It's available to anyone from any nation regardless of your ethnicity, your income, your your social standing, your skin color. All that anyone must do is trust And obey Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, all the way to the end of your life. Then God's wrath is taken away from you. Those who die without the Lamb die with the wrath of God remaining on them forever. In verses 32 to 34, John bears witness to Jesus as the Son of God. So first, he's the Lamb of God, but another title 
Son of God. Verse 32 says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and he, the Spirit, remained on Jesus, on him. Now, we know from the other Gospels that this happened at Christ's baptism in the Jordan. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. Now, here... We're not told about John's baptism. Again, it's another way of pointing away from John to Jesus. But it's fair to ask, why a bird? Uh, why, or more, more specifically, why a dove? Let's take those two questions separately, because that's important, actually. Let's, let's think about bird, uh, why a bird in general. The bird is the only animal that travels back and forth. Between heaven and earth. I'm not talking about the highest heaven where the angels are, obviously. But remember, the sky is part of the heavens, plural. And in Genesis 1.20 and Deuteronomy 4.17, they say that the birds fly above the earth and in the heavens. So a bird is a fitting symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven to earth onto Jesus. And then later on to his church, just as birds descend from heaven to earth, go back and forth. But the other question is more important. Why a dove in particular? And to answer it, let me ask another question. What is the second most well-known dove in the Bible? We know what the first one is, right? This one in this passage. The one descending on Jesus is the the most well-known, right? We can agree to that. What's the second most well-known dove in the entire Bible? That's right. That's right. Noah, right? Noah's ark. The one that Noah sent out of the ark multiple times in Genesis chapter 8. And there's a connection between these two doves. And let me, to, to understand this connection, let me read a passage from Genesis 8. You can listen. Then Noah sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had gone down from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her feet. And she returned to him in the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew, drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out of the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive tree was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had gone down from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him again. Now, why does God spend so much time telling about this dove that's going to and fro over the earth, over the face of the earth? Over the face of the water. It's because this dove that Noah keeps sending out is supposed to remind us of something that happened earlier. It's supposed to remind us of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1. Remember? That's what the Holy Spirit is doing on the original creation. Genesis 1 2 says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Actually, the word is fluttering. But that maybe doesn't sound as good as a translation. Fluttering like the wings of a bird. 
what the word means. So Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was fluttering over the face of the waters. So in Genesis 8, we see the dove fluttering over the waters, roaming around. And this tells us that God is forming a new creation after the flood. He's about to form dry ground, to make dry ground appear again. The post-flood world is a new world, a new creation. Noah is a new Adam. God even tells Adam to be fruitful and to multiply, just as he told Adam. And the hovering dove in Genesis 8 is a symbol of the hovering Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is who brings newness, who brings new creation, new life, new beginning. So this dove points to the Holy Spirit back in Genesis 1. It also points forward to the Spirit in John 1. The Spirit's descent on Jesus as a dove in John 1 is telling us that God is forming a new creation. He's bringing new life. And at the center of this new creation is Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, God's Son. Jesus, the Son of God, is anointed with the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry as he inaugurates the new covenant, the new creation. Jesus receives the Spirit first, and he receives it without measure. Later, John 3.34 says that God gives the Spirit without limit, particularly when it comes to his Son, Jesus But you see, Jesus doesn't bottle up the Spirit. He doesn't just get it and then put a cap on it. He gives Him away. Rivers of living water flow out of Christ. Rivers of the Holy Spirit flow from Christ's heart into the hearts of His people and then out of their hearts. That's the implication of John 7, 38, which we'll come back to in just a minute. Jesus is not just a receiver or a container of the Holy Spirit. He's a conduit of the Holy Spirit. He sends, he gives the Holy Spirit. The Son of God who is anointed with the Spirit in his baptism is the one who baptizes his people with the same Spirit in their baptisms. And they receive him through faith. Jesus is the main baptizer, not John. Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. Peter says the same thing in Acts 2.38. Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who believe and are baptized receive from Jesus the same Holy Spirit received by Jesus at his baptism. John's baptism was with water alone. Christ's baptism is with water and the Spirit. And we'll see that again in John 3. We'll talk about it next week as well. But I want to end with John 7, 38 and 39. 
This is where Jesus promises to give the spirit to his church. It's a fitting place to to end since this is Pentecost Sunday. Listen to what Jesus says in John 7, 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have rivers of living water flow out of his heart. Jesus said this about the spirit whom those believing in him were going to receive. The promise in John 7 was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, which we read earlier, when Jesus poured out his spirit onto his new church, his new creation. Jesus, you see, has given his spirit to his people, to his church, which means he has given his spirit to you. You have access to the same power, the same river of living water, the same spirit who was poured out on the son of God. And that's why you can be called a child of God or a son of God, to use Paul's language. When you were baptized into Christ, when God put his Trinitarian name on you and washed your body with pure water, Hebrews 10 says you were baptized With the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10 says that in baptism. Your heart was sprinkled from an evil conscience. And now. And now. Rivers of living. Holy Spirit water. Are able to flow through you. And to come out of your heart. Is that what you see happening in your life? Is this characterize you or is this completely foreign are you living this out are rivers of living holy spirit water flowing out of your heart or are you living sort of a dried up life is your river dried up if so claim the promises of god and walk in the spirit you have been given Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for your word. Help us to understand it, to believe it, and then to put it into practice by the power of your spirit working in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.